go ahead and get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1. I'd love for you to join me there. Matthew 1 should be really easy for you to find. Just go to the first page of the New Testament. Now, uh, this has already been shown to you a few different times this morning, and I just want to make sure uh, that you guys are uh, aware that there are copies available for every one of our families out back. Pastor Ethan can show you those whenever you leave today. If, uh, you, if uh, there's not one with your name on it, then just pick one up. We're trying to have them for our families first, but of course, everyone is welcome to have them. Um, but in an effort to try to align everything that we're doing together as a church family in this Advent season... Our Sunday mornings and the, the sermon series for Advent are going to be um, in a similar fashion, working to unwrap the names of Jesus. And so this Sunday, we are unwrapping the name of Jesus and Christ, which often go together, do they not? It's probably the most used and uh, misused name, <laughs> is it not? <laughs> um, you can usually tell how a person is using it by the tone in their voice. Whether it has a note to it, Jesus. What are they doing there? They're praising. Jesus. What are they doing there? They're scared. Jesus Christ. What are they there? They're angry, right? Probably the most used and misused name of our Savior and Lord. Um, and, and I'd say some of those are probably borderline using the name of the Lord in vain. So uh, let's be careful how we say this name. Now, what's ironic is that there are uh, certain groups of Christians that are scared to use one name and, use, and instead use the other. So you have some groups who will only call the Son of God Christ, and they'll never refer to him as Jesus because they care more about exalting the, uh, the, the, the supremacy, the excellency, the majesty of the Son of God in the name of Christ to the neglect of the personable name of Jesus. Then you also have those on the flip side who prioritize the name Jesus, and they're praying to, to, to baby Jesus, and they're praying to best friend Jesus, and they, they, they prioritize the intimacy and the nearness and the personhood that is the Son of God represented by the personal name of Jesus to the neglect of the, the exaltation and the, the nature and the high supreme, the, like the supremacy that Christ itself represents. And so, so we're not going to say one to the neglect of the other or keep one to the forsaking of the other. We're going to keep both of them together as they're so often represented in Scripture because they are really inseparable. If you notice, in the first part of the book of Matthew, he, the author, Jesus, I mean, obviously God is the author of this book, but, but he uses the name Jesus Christ multiple times already before we even get to our passage in verse 18. So if you have your Bibles, you should be in chapter 1 by now. It should all hopefully be on the same page for you. Look at verse 1. He starts off the book with an account of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we get the genealogies. Uh, we're not going to do it this day, but uh, or this Advent season. But one of these Advent seasons would be awesome to go look through those uh, the, the ancestry line of Jesus. But then get to verse sixteen, and we see that Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called what the Christ. So he starts it off with Jesus Christ, but then he gives birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And then look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the who? Christ. No Jesus there, just the Christ. 14 generations, only to follow all of it with the beginning of our passage in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ. So we've got this whole mixture of usage with how... He puts Jesus by itself, or the Christ by itself, or he puts them both together as Jesus Christ. And so we're going we're gonna to look at those two parts of this name, Jesus Christ. We're going to start with the name Christ. Now, uh, what's ironic, if, if, uh, I think a lot of people think this way. If Jesus were to go to the DMV and try to sign up for a driver's license, and he was to write uh, he was fill out a form. It was first name and last name. What would he write in his first name? And what would he write in his last name? That's what a lot of people think, right? That's we think that Christ is his last name. Like 
Like that was supposed to, his surname, however all the nations would do it, right? And yet you're kind of not wrong because throughout scripture we see the name Jesus Christ appear 135 times in the, new, in the Bible. But here's the ironic thing. We also see the inverse 90 times. We see Christ Jesus almost just as much throughout the New Testament. So let's try to get this out of our head and get something new in our head this morning. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It is the title of Jesus. So you know how whenever you can select Mr. or Mrs. or Reverend or Pastor or whatever, like all that stuff, you can kind of put something in the front. The title of Jesus is Christ. It's less of a name, more of a title. And the word Christ is from the Greek Christos, which is actually just a, 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 a it translates the Hebrew word Mashiach. And, and, and that's the Hebrew word what? Who knows? Messiah. You guys did well. My pronunciation was terrible. Messiah is an Old Testament title. So when you think Christ, think Messiah. So what do you say when I say Christ? 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 We're not doing that. I'm just kidding. Here's what's ironic. Throughout the whole Old Testament, the noun Messiah hardly ever appears. Unless it's referring to somebody who's been anointed by old. And we'll talk about that in a second. There, there are hardly any prophecies or words in the Old Testament that are spe- like specifically calling out to a Messiah. Instead, what's happened is that there are a bunch of prophecies, words in the Old Testament about one who is coming, who would redeem, who would rule, who would liberate, who would save, who would bring justice, And they took the collective of all of those prophecies and called them messianic prophecies. Prophecies about this coming Messiah. So what you'll know, I've got a few. What you'll never see is the word, the Messiah will do this. But you can track the theme through them all. Check this out. In Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, a ruler will come out of Jacob. Or you can see in Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. You don't hear the word about a Messiah there, but you know it's about the Messiah, don't you? Or what about Isaiah 53? You see the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, never called specifically in Isaiah 53 the Messiah, but we know it's about who? The Messiah. Or what about Isaiah 61? Verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because Yahweh, the Lord, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning. And so you don't see a bunch of, say, hey, the Messiah is going to do this, literally, but you do see, hey, this, there's one who is coming and this is what he will do. And you can say, that's a messianic promise. That's a messianic prophecy. Now, I mentioned it earlier in brief, but the word Messiah, who knows what that means? If you do, shout it out. It means anointed one. It means one who is anointed. And what, what, do, we, what, what do we use to anoint? What did, in the Bible did they use to anoint? Oil. Oil. Fragrant oil. Anointing oil is often what it's referred to. So uh, the Messiah is one who has been anointed. And so what's ironic is you actually have several people who have been Messiahed. They've been anointed in the Old Testament. It means to pour oil, oil over a place or a person. And it's a liquid symbol for God's Spirit. And what happens is it, was, it would be poured over a place, it would be poured over an object, it would be poured over a person. So let me tell you a few of those. So for example, uh, remember Jacob had that dream uh, that some rock band later copped as their own song, Stairway to Heaven, right? 
Jacob has this dream, uh, and he wakes up, and uh, he takes that stone that he was laying his head on. Can you imagine sleeping on a stone, right? And he takes oil, and he anoints the stone. Why? Because it was a place where there was a bridge between heaven and earth. He had this vision of a stairway between heaven and earth. So he anoints the stone, and he anoints that place, and he calls it Bethel, house of God. Or what about the tabernacle? When the Israelites finished building the tabernacle, that portable tent, that portable temple for the Lord, they anointed that place with oil, because that's a place where God's presence was going to come down and dwell among the people of Israel. It was a bridge between heaven and earth. We also see that not only places or things were anointed, but people were anointed. There were three specific offices in the Old Testament that were called to be anointed when they go to serve. You had prophets who were anointed. You had priests who were anointed. And you had kings who were anointed. Poured over with oil. Now we also find out throughout the Old Testament that The tabernacle was only a type, an image of something to come. We know that that rock was only an image of something to come. We know that these prophets, priests, and kings messed up terribly, and they were simply just images of one who was coming. We find Jesus comes, and he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the spirit or the presence of God coming down to earth. He's not just simply a bridge between heaven and earth. He is heaven come down to earth. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, that thin space where heaven and earth coexist. Now we we know that Jesus is the Messiah, not just simply because it's told to us in the Bible, but because he was absolutely convinced of it, and so were his disciples, and so were those who came to meet him. We see Peter, uh, uh, when, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus celebrates it. We see in John 4, the Samaritan woman, right? And she's having this conversation with Jesus by the well, and, and um She's, they're talking about how, where to worship, how to worship, and, and, and she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he will clarify everything for us. And what does Jesus say? I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. I'm the Messiah. That's what he says. Jesus was absolutely convinced that he was God's anointed one, which is why when he goes into the synagogue, He reads that Isaiah 61 passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the title of Jesus. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Christ. In fact, it's from his title that we get our title. What's our title? Christian. As much baggage that comes with that name, it's still the appropriate name. Christians coming from the word Christ, we are now anointed ones who follow the anointed one. Are we not? You know what's ironic though? How, uh, did Jesus give us the name Christian? No. Did the church come up with that and say, no, we'll call ourselves Christians? No. Actually, the leaders in the city of Antioch in Acts chapter 11 gave it as a way to like demoralize, and and, and it's kind of like a passive kind of um, derogatory thing to call this group of people who were so affiliated with Jesus Christians, little Christ, or the more literal is belonging to the party of Christ. I will gladly associate myself with Jesus, the Christ. So we have this one name, better yet, a title of the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the one who had been prophesied for many ages, here being born of the Virgin Mary, Christ, the Messiah, 
Messiah meaning what? Anointed one. And though he is the Christ, the Messiah, and that is his rightful title, that is not the name that God told Mary and Joseph to give to their baby boy. We find in our story here in Matthew 1 that Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. (laughs) He finds out that she's pregnant. He considers divorcing her quietly because he's a righteous man. But as he's considered this and he's come to a decision, he has this vision, this dream where this angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him that that he should not be afraid to marry her, that she has not been unfaithful. This child, this boy that is within her is from the Holy Spirit, miraculously conceived. And the angel tells Joseph to call him who? Jesus. That's like the most Sunday school answer. You say that every time, you probably get it right 50% of the time. 50% of the time it works, every time. The name Jesus Jesus is actually Greek, Jesus. Actually, Jesus is English, Jesus is Greek. But it comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. So you have the short form of it, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Or you have the longer form of it, Yehoshua, Yahweh is salvation. The fact that this angel is giving Joseph this vision and this command to name their son Jesus means that the baby boy that they're about to bring into the world is the one who has been promised to bring Yahweh's salvation to the world. Here's what's ironic, though. Um, At that time, there were a ton of little boys who had the name Jesus. There were a lot of them. They were running all over the place. Hey, Jesus. Jesus wasn't the only one with that name. Why? Because in the Old Testament, there were two very prominent figures who uh, were sharing that name, Joshua, Yeshua, or Yahshua, right? And, and, And so that was a very popular name to name them after. That's why we have today Paul's and John's and David's. We have like 500 David's. They're good men. We have just as many Debbies, too. It's ridiculous. Or Debras. It's very popular to name their son Yeshua or Yahshua in that day. In fact, we still have that today. Go to a certain culture or a certain country, and you will find many of <laughs> Jesus's, right? Or, or if you go, so that's in Spanish culture. If you go to Arabic, Isa is a very popular name because it's the prophet Jesus, Isa. They'll, they'll name their kids that. They have a whole tribe over there that I went to go and meet on in this past summer. In Jordan, named after Jesus, Isa. Very common. So what makes this guy any different? What makes this little baby boy in the womb any kind of different? Well, because of who he was in his nature and what he would do. So we've already been told that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one sent from God. But we also are told right with his name why he's given the name because of what he would do. Did you notice that? Verse 21, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel is explaining the significance of giving this baby boy the name Jesus by quoting a passage from the Old Testament I don't know if you noticed that, but it's Psalm. It's found in the book of Psalms, chapter 130, verse 7 through 8. Israel, put your hope in Yahweh, for there is faithful love with Yahweh, and with him is redemption and abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. This is huge. This idea that hundreds of years before the naming of this child, before Jesus comes on the scene, there's already been this call to put their hope in Yahweh for their salvation, for their rescue. In fact, I actually, I think we need to spend a lot of time 
this morning exploring the richness of the Old Testament history that accompanies this concept. And I think it would be helpful if we were to to take a look at the dynamic between Moses and Joshua with his story, with that story there. So how many of you know what the name Moses means? Go ahead and shout it out if you do. It means to be drawn out, right? Remember Pharaoh's daughter picked him up out of the, the river. I will call him Moses for I've drawn him out of the river. It means to be drawn out. And that actually turns out to be very prophetic because Moses leads who out of slavery to Egypt? The Israelites, right? Moses, after leading Israel out of slavery to Egypt, leads them into the wilderness, leads them to the Mount Sinai, and they receive the covenant, the arrangement, the terms and the conditions of their relationship between them and God, with Yahweh as their God. And it turns out that the terms and conditions required of Israel were perfection, perfect obedience to all of the laws that God had prescribed in this old covenant, that they were to uh, offer countless sacrifices to atone for the guilt of their sin. And as they're doing this, they're on their way to the promised land that God had said, I'm going to draw you out to draw you into that place. And all the while they're on their way there to the promised land, they keep messing up time and time and time again. They're holding up to their name. Do you know what Israel means? Wrestles with God. I feel like that's my name. Wrestles with God. Never seems to get it right. They get to the border of the promised land. They don't want to go in because there'd be giants, and they'd rather go back to slavery in Egypt. Well, God's, nope, this generation's not ready. So they wander for 40 years. That older generation dies off. The new generation comes in, and they're led back to the border of the promised land under Moses' leadership. But is Moses the one who brings them into the promised land? No. No, he, he kind of messed up too. <laughs> he messed up so bad that God actually doesn't allow Moses to enter into that promised land. He goes up to a high mountain. He gets to look at it, but he doesn't get to go to it. And there he dies. Who is it that actually leads the people of God into the promised land? Joshua. Yeshua. You see, Moses was unable to lead God's people into the promised land. But it was under Joshua that the the border was crossed, the people enter in, and, and all of the enemies are conquered, and the people are established in the promised land. Not by Moses, but under the leadership of Joshua. And I don't know if you're hearing the bells ringing, but can you hear the gospel? You see, Moses represents moralism. He represents law. He represents a works-based kind of righteousness. And and, and he represents man offering the sacrifice to atone for guilt and to atone for sin. But it turns out that all the law could really do was expose just how deep sin runs in our veins and how impossible it is for us to heal ourselves of it. You see, Moses wasn't God's ultimate rescue plan. You see, Joshua, his name, and the fact that he is the one who leads all of Israel into the promised land is shouting what God's plan has been from the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned and he promised that there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent, her offspring would crush his head. That is God himself. 
So the fact that it's not Moses who gets to lead Israel in, but it's Joshua who gets to lead Israel in, is the fact that it's, it's shouting to us that only salvation is found in Yahweh, that Yahweh himself is our salvation. Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves. It's himself. Yahweh is the one who saves us. In fact, if you really, really, really want to get deep into the meaning of names as we have been all morning, what does the name Yahweh mean? It means in the third person, He is. If He says it in the first person, it's Ewe, Asher, Ewe, I am that I am, but we're told to call Him Yahweh, meaning He is. So if you want to say Yahweh is our salvation, literally, He is our salvation. Not us. He is. Guys, that's what the whole Old Testament has been whispering at times and shouting most of the time. It's God who saves. It's not our works-based righteousness in keeping the law. Guys, it's why we have so many different psalms that are calling us to put all of our hope and all of our trust in Yahweh, not in ourselves, not in our chariots, not in our horses, not in our wealth, but in Him alone. It's, it's why we have so many stories throughout the Old Testament about vast and mighty armies coming against Israel, ready to just totally decimate them. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God goes before them and just decimates them with no effort of Israel's. It's why the Red Sea split in two. You thought Moses' staff did that? God's breath split the sea in two. And then he collapses it on Pharaoh's army. He delivers and he destroys the enemy. It's why the walls of Jericho crumble. You think it was because of Israel's worship to God? No, it's because God showed up and he, he called the walls to crawl, fall. Why do you think Daniel wasn't snack food for the lions in the den? Because he had some smell that made the lions be like, I don't know, eating that one. No, you see, all along, in every single account in the Old Testament, Yahweh has been showing us that he himself is our salvation. Go up on the, ta- on the, t- on the, on the mountaintop with Abraham and Isaac when he's about to offer his own son up. And Isaac is rescued. And the ram is provided. The Lord provides the ram because the Lord is our salvation. It's what he's been shouting the whole time. It's not you who saves you. It's not your goodness. It's not the checklist that you keep of all your good works. It's Yahweh who saves. It's our God. And here in this Advent passage, in this announcing the arrival of the Son to Joseph, and the name that God provides for the Son, the angel specifically focuses in on what is central to God's rescue plan. It's not salvation from a foreign army. It's rescue from their sin. Do you see that? And you are to name Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. It doesn't say He will save them from discomfort. It doesn't say that He will save them from poverty. It doesn't say that He will save them from a bad day. It says He will save them from their sins. Why sin? Because if you read this long enough, you are going to find out very quickly that the greatest problem in your life is you. It's your sin. As Joseph said, it's the things that you're holding on to and the things that have hold on you. In the biblical perspective, sin is the basic cause of every calamity. Either it's the basic or it's the immediate cause. Sin has a way to rupture and destroy everything. 
It can, it can rupture, <laughs> it can rupture a ride to church on a Sunday morning. It can, it can uh, fracture marriages. It can divide homes. It can ruin relationships. It can throw you into poverty, and it can also lead you into prominence in pride. Sin is the worst part of the world. You know, I, um, I got a, a text from one of our church family sisters, Denise. She's been reading through Romans, and she, she said, hey, uh, can you explain to me what Romans 5, 12 through uh, 21 says? And, and it's, it's this really long passage. I'm not going to go there, but basically the passage simply says, because of Adam's one sin, Sin, condemnation, and death spread to all mankind. It spoiled the whole lot of creation. Guys, what we need rescue from most is sin. Those things that create chaos, that promise pleasure, but spoil it instead. We need rescue from our sin. Our sin is so heavy. And I'll tell you, it's a really hard thing to admit that. It's a really hard thing for us to be willing to confess, yeah, the biggest problem in my life is not my spouse, it's not my boss, it's not my coworker, it's not my kids, it's me. And I'm not saying that I'm your biggest problem. Um, You are your biggest problem. The person who's caused the most pain and trouble in your life isn't Satan, it's you. Now that might be controversy, but you have authority over the enemy in Christ, so there's that. But here's what's so amazing. If you look in Romans 5 and keep going, this is what he says. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man Adam, his trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. Guys, Jesus, inherent in his name, is God coming to rescue us from all the weight and the guilt and the dominion of sin and its hold on us. And you know what all that's required of us? All that's required of the gospel from us? It's faith. Now some of you are wanting me to add on, well, what about works? What about doing good? It's like, no, all the gospel requires is faith. A kind of faith that produces the fruit of good works, but inherent in itself, faith. Is all that the gospel requires of us. Receiving the gift. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through, and this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God's, not by works, so that no one can boast. None of us are going to go before God when we get to heaven and say, hey, did you see all of my good works? I'm boasting in my works. No, we hold up the cross of Christ and we say, no, he is why we're here. He is why we're acceptable to you. Because he saved us from our sins. So if we spend enough time unwrapping the name Jesus, we find Yeshua. God is our salvation. He's our rescuer. In other words... In the name of Jesus, we find the gospel. He is our salvation. Now, some of you have already started to, you know, uh, put those little Christmas cards together. You uh, You put a family picture on there. You put the names of everyone in your family. And then you try to wrestle with what Bible verse to put on that, don't you? Right? Like, which Christmas verse do I put on my Christmas card to send out to everybody? I want to say that my favorite one is Matthew 1.21. You will call his name Jesus, 
for you, he will save his people from their sins. It is the gospel in one sentence, in one verse. So if you were struggling, there you go. I made it easy for you. It's God who rescues, not your goodness. Now, for most of us in here, this is not new news to us. It's good news. We know it well. Some of us know it really well. Some of us are finding it more and more beautiful as we go. So why on earth would I take a whole morning during Advent to remind us of the gospel when we could have been doing something fun with the genealogies or looking at some of the Old Testament prophecies? Why do we need this reminder again and again and again of the gospel of Christ? Why? My goodness, because you and I are so easily prone to wandering back into a works-based mentality. It's so easy for us to wander back into religion, into moralism. Moralism meaning a a works-based kind of merit, a a defining of our relationship with God by goods and bads, by do's and don'ts. Unfortunately, a lot of us heard the gospel preached as that. Have you realized that Paul's whole letter to the church in Galatians was him confronting them about the fact that they first heard the gospel of God's grace, that God is the one who saves, and then all of a sudden they've wandered back off into a moralism understanding of how they get accepted by God and keeping in works of the law? He says, who has bewitched you? Guys, the default mode of our human hearts is works righteousness. We, we don't naturally, we don't instinctively live as if the gospel is true. We have it up here, but it's not defining here. And guys, and, 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 and it's not like, it's not like it's like, we're so bad. Everything around us breathes the air of a works-based righteousness. Everything in our culture is set up based on performance. It's set up based on, on, on give and take, on transaction. I'll be relational with you if you'll be relational with me. If you're toxic to me, I'm going to cancel you. Right? Like all of this nonsense that none of it comes from the gospel is the air that we breathe when we step into the public square. We need to be the carriers of the gospel into that sphere to redefine relationship based on this sense of the gospel. But it first has to shape how we relate to our God first in practice. You know, there's a, there's a theologian named Richard Lovelace. He actually just passed away in 2020. He was a professor at Gordon-Conwell. And one of the things he set out to do was he set out to study all of the revivals throughout church history, the sense of revival. And he wanted to look at all of these revivals and say, out of all the differences that they have, what is the one thing that they seem to have in common? What is one thing that they all share? He wanted to figure out what it was. And here's what he found. Here's what he found. He found that Christians know intellectually that our justification which means our acceptance by God, is the basis of our sanctification, which is, in short, our moral behavior. That justification is the basis of our sanctification. But he found out that in our actual day-to-day existence, we rely on our sanctification for our justification. We draw our assurance of our acceptance before God with our sincerity and our faith at the moment, or our past experience of conversion, or our recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of our conscious, willful disobedience. Guys, it's so easy for us to wander back off into this understanding and believe in our heads and in our hearts that Jesus like accepts me, therefore I will live a good life, right? And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's so easy to have it up here. But our hearts 
and our actions can so easily function as the opposite. I live a good life, therefore God accepts me. Guys, God accepting you doesn't come from your perfect, undoubting faith. And his acceptance of you isn't lost when you do have doubts. His acceptance of you doesn't come from that altar call experience you had 20 years ago when you repeated a prayer that the pastor told you to pray. Your God accepting you isn't uh, coming about by the, the long list of good works that you hold up to everyone and say, look at how good I am. His acceptance of you isn't based on how long it's been since you last chose to sin. His acceptance of you is not based on your comparative righteousness. You don't find the worst person near you and say, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. If we get this gospel wrong, not just in our heads, but in practice and how we relate to God, we can err on two ways. We can be so smug. I am self-righteous. Look at me. When we're, we can get that way when we feel like we're living up to his standards. Or we can err the other way with massive amounts of insecurities and anxieties and self-hatred, especially when we feel like we're never measuring up. Guys, you and I, we can't just mentally subscribe to the belief that God alone is our salvation while functionally trusting and resting in our own moral goodness. Guys, our confidence before God isn't in anything within us or what we do or what we can hold up or what trophies we can merit, right? No, no, no. God is our salvation from the beginning all the way to the end when we're with him in glory. He is the one who rescues us. So what we really need as a church family is we need revival daily. Revival meaning we need the Holy Spirit to increase His work of applying the gospel into every part of our lives. That God accepts you. No ifs, ands, or buts, or coconuts. He accepts you because you have received simply the gift of His Son. Therefore, we go and live a good life. You know, yesterday morning, I, um, I don't know, I mean, some of you might be able to be like, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, yesterday morning, I woke up after a, another, another week of highs and lows. Um, and, and again, uh, feeling really frustrated about my Christian performance <laughs> um, that I had, I had performed that week. Didn't really stop this bad habit that keeps coming up and didn't really keep this good one. And man, my man, my man. And there's a way, if you sit in that for long enough, you will just be overwhelmed with doubt and insecurity and self-hatred. But in that moment of just absolute frustration, um, praise His name, Holy Spirit graciously came in, and I found myself on my face before God in tears feeling, not just knowing, but feeling the futility of my own strength and ability to do what I know God wants me to do and to not do what he says is sinful. And then from experiencing the futility of my own strength came this deeply felt sense of desperation and total dependence upon Jesus. 
which makes 100% sense. Because it's Yahweh who saves us. Jesus is God saving us, rescuing us, not just from the guilt of sin, from the, but from the habits of sin, from having to sin. So when you feel that sense of total dependence upon Christ, total reliance upon him, you'll know when you feel it because all you can feel in your heart is a sense of peace and assurance that God alone is the one who has rescued you and he accepts you because of Christ's goodness, not your own. Because if it was your own, might as well just give up now. But it's Christ. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel that God is our salvation. And that isn't just a set of beliefs that we as Christians subscribe to in thought. It is a profound power that changes us completely and continually. And so that's why we need to go to the gospel again and again and again and again. To never waver to keep preaching it to ourselves over and over, that inherent in the name Jesus Christ is the anointed one of God who is Yahweh our salvation. And as a way to keep bringing it before us again and again and again, Jesus commands us to take the Lord's Supper together as a way to remind us of the gospel over and over and over again, his body and his blood offered for us. So we're going to transition into taking communion together. And for those who don't know, um, communion is uh, a sacrament or an ordinance commissioned by Christ, Jesus, to his church to observe continually and perpetually until his return. The symbolism of it all is, is pointing us back to his body and his blood that were offered for us to atone for all our sin, to rescue us from the guilt and the dominion of it. He specifically tells us that it's supposed to be for those who are believing upon the Son. And so if you're here today and, and this news about Jesus being everything that's required to rescue us from sin and to restore us back to God, if that's foreign to you and that's hard for you to accept, then, then we're not, we're, I mean, I, we love you, we're glad you're here, um, but the, the communion table is not for you because the communion table is specifically for those who have forsaken all of their efforts, who have put aside their list of good works and hold up Christ and say, no, Jesus is my righteousness. He alone is who makes me acceptable to God. I plead the name of Jesus. Therefore, I am accepted. Therefore, I live a good life. And so if, if you're here this morning and, and, and that's impossible for you to accept, then the table isn't for you. But if you're here this morning and you're finding out, wow, that's, that's the new terms and condition. That's, that's what's required. That's how I can be rescued. Not of me, but of Christ alone. I want that. I'm throwing myself totally on him. If that's you this morning, then I, I, I want to know. <laughs> but I also, I want you to join us at this table because this meal is exactly for you because you're accepting the body and the blood, the sacrifice and the cleansing that's offered through Christ in the gospel. Now, one of the things that Paul does say is that as a church, when we come together to do the Lord's Supper, we're not to do it in a rush, we're not to do it hurriedly, and we're not to do it without one another. We're not, one's not supposed to go ahead and eat while waiting for the other, right? Like, we all come together and we partake together. But he also says that in, in instructing us in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we're to examine our hearts, that we're to actually do the work of examining before we come to this table, not holding on to anything in our hearts, cherishing sin in any way holding on to it in any way actively. 
And so I'm going to ask that um, as the worship team comes up now and they begin to play, that you guys would, um, that you guys would take time to, to reflect. How have you been relying on your own accolades and your own goodness to think that you're earning God's acceptance and favor? How have you been trusting in your good works or frustrated by your continual sin thinking that that means God's going to forsake you and all the fear and the insecurity that can come when that's your mentality, when that's your understanding of how God wants to relate to you. And so if you would, as the kids get settled, if you guys would just bow your heads. And if you need, ask Holy Spirit, if you want, ask Holy Spirit to come in and examine your heart, to test it, to see which ways you're trusting upon yourself, that you're reliant upon your own goodness. And instead, ask Him to convince you of the real truth, that Jesus is your righteousness from beginning to the end. He is God's salvation. And as you examine your hearts, I'm going to ask that the ushers would come forward now to be ready to receive elements. Jesus, would you give fresh grace now? This daily grace that is the good news of the gospel that releases us from a performance understanding of how we're to relate to you. I pray that my sisters and my brothers in here would experience, not just know, but experience the joy that comes when the gospel defines who they are and how they relate to you. Would you bring that fresh grace now as we receive the elements in celebration and recognition and remembrance of your Son, Jesus, Yahweh, our salvation, the Christ, our Messiah, the Anointed One, heaven come down to earth. Please, God, fresh. In Jesus' name.